0: for Lean Blog Audio. I hope that'll give you something else uh, that's food for thought, something else to help you in your lean journey. Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at
1: www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben.
0: Hi, this is Mark Graben. Welcome to episode 244 of the podcast. It's March 9th, 2016. My guest today is Dan Markovitz. This is part two of a discussion that we started back in episode 241 about his book, Building the Fit Organization, Six Core Principles for Making Your Company Stronger, Faster, and More Competitive. In uh, part one, back in episode 241, we talked about the first three themes of his book, which are one, commit to improvement, two, increase value, don't cut costs, and three, think horizontally. And today we're going to talk about um, the last three. So I hope you enjoy the discussion. Um, to learn more about Dan and his book, go to leanblog.org slash 244. Okay, so we're back here with uh, part two, having a really good conversation with Dan Markovitz about his book, most recent book, Building the Fit Organization. Dan, thanks for uh, coming back to continue our chat. I couldn't
1: be happier. I love doing this
0: with you, Mark. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we had such a good conversation It was running long and, you know, we, we covered, you know, among other topics, the first three sort of key principles from your book, Dan, um, why don't we just you know, kind of jump into the fourth principle and, and standard work? How do you, you know, how do you treat that in the book? What are the connections between the idea of fitness and lean and organizations? Well, if we think
1: about standard work from a fitness uh, metaphor, It really jibes with what a lot of people know. If you're, for example, going to be powerlifting, you're going to want to hold the bar in a certain way. You're going to want to lift it in a certain way so that you don't blow out your back or destroy your knees. If you're swimming, there's standard work. There's a certain way to hold your hands, to to hold your head. There are certain positions that you can swim faster and smoother. Um, Running, same thing. There are certain basic primary techniques for running, but how you hold your arms and how you hold your chin and what you do with your knees and so on. So I think that with with fitness, um, we're used to standards. I mean, heck, you go into a gym uh, if you're or if you have a physical trainer and the trainer says, this is how you do the exercise. So standard work is something we accept in that environment. I think in a corporate environment, um, certainly standard work has its roots in a lot of respects in the training within industry movement uh, during World War II. So here's how you hold a, a hammer. Here's how you work a drill press. Here's how you do these things so that you, the product comes out properly and you don't hurt yourself. Um, but I think there's also standardized work for leaders. What are you going to do on a each day. When are you going to do it? How are you going to do it? How are you mm-hmm. going to talk to people? What are you going to look for? When are you going, um, how often are you going to do these things? Yeah. Um, and and I was really uh, struck by something that James Hereford, who is the COO of Stanford Medical Center, mm-hmm. said to me. He lives by standard work, and uh, as do all of his direct reports. And he said, the benefit for me, for standardized work, is that it keeps me from drowning in administrative. Hmm. And I love that because what he's saying is these things are really important and in my position <laughs> there's a really high risk that I'm not going to get to do these things, whatever those things are on his list of standard work, because of the million and one fires that are going to break out, the emergency meetings, the sudden phone calls and emails. This ensures that I don't, get, I don't lose sight of the important things and I, and I don't forget how to do my job properly. And I think that's a real uh, from both the front line of here's how you enter a customer order to the COO of a hospital saying, this is how I run my week. I think that there's standard work that's relevant at all levels and to all people.
0: Yeah. Well, I think, you know, one thing that's interesting about. James and his own standardized work is that I mean as as a COO he's got the autonomy to say well you know I'm going to I'm going to do this I'm going to create my own standard work it's helping me you know he's got that ability to do that and I think you know it's interesting when you look at whether it's assembly line workers or, or employees in a hospital standardized work has generally been dictated by management dictated by engineers. This is the old, basically the Frederick Taylor approach of I'm the expert, you're the worker, I'm going to show you how to do it. You right. know, James has the ability, he's choosing to follow standardized work. The, the thing I think is different about lean and interesting about lean, even if, if you go back to Toyota, Toyota people have always written and said very clearly, you know, standardized work is developed by the people who do the work. And, no, and that, that's a key distinction.
1: Yes. There's a photo in in my book uh, of the standardized work that the customer service department at uh, NFI uh, and Industries has put together. NFI is a a third-party logistics company, and their wall is filled with these, um, not binders, but little, I forgot what you call these things. They're sort of clear plastic uh, buckets that you attach to a wall.
0: Kind of document so this, document holders. Yeah, of yeah, yeah, yeah. So the
1: standardized work, standard work, is not in a three-ring binder collecting dust in yeah. a shelf. It's right on the wall. The standard work is laminated, and the front of so the customer service reps are the ones who make the standard work, and and it's fascinating. They they put in big letters, not just you know how to enter a return or how to change a ship date or something like that but the customer service reps have actually used their own language. So it says things like, zoinks, the customer says that he can't be there to pick up the shipment, or, uh-huh. oh, darn, yeah. the, uh, the, the shipping agent is, is out today, what do I do? Or, holy moly, this is a, you know, whatever it is. And so it's in, they're having fun with it. It's their language written by them, and they don't laminate the standard work until everyone agrees that this is the way to do it. And it's fascinating, when they don't follow standard work, the first thing they do is they go to the person who didn't follow the standard work and say, walk us through what you did. Help us understand why you didn't follow standard work because maybe we need to change it.
0: Yeah.
1: As opposed to what's the matter with you? You didn't follow standard work. <laughs>
0: right. The assumption yeah. is that the standard work is wrong if someone didn't follow it. Or or there was I would you know I would add there's something in the system that prevented you from following the standardized work. Something right, that right, right. prompted a workaround or prompted um, you know some some scenario or or sometimes you learn that well you know the way we wrote the standardized work document was maybe a little bit too specific and part of our standard work is well you know there's a time and a place for judgment um, right and I think as you get away from the assembly line and highly repetitive highly engineered work you know I think that's that's the reality in in jobs is that uh, there's I think certain key in in any work there's certain key specific things that have that do have to be done a very particular way for some reason and you know you mentioned training within industry i think the brilliant thing about twi is that even 70 years ago that approach never just said do this do that it was more a matter of uh, also explaining why those steps are are important and, and helping people internalize it so they can choose to follow the standardized work instead of being coerced into following it. I think, you know, to me, that's what makes it lean compared to, um, you know, quote unquote Taylorism.
1: You know, uh, one thing people often forget about the TWI is that the, the way TWI was taught was also standardized. Yeah. It wasn't just, this is how you're going to do the, 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 task, but this is how you're going to teach people to do this task.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, the standardized work for the trainer, sort of like you were suggesting, standardized work for uh, a leader.
1: Exactly. And now you—I mean—in the hospital world, of course, you run into resistance and misunderstanding of this all the time. Uh, you've blogged about it in particular recently, in fact,
0: uh, uh, yeah. quite extensively. Well, yeah, and you know, some, I mean, it was a lot of this was—I've I've blogged about it before, and you know, the, the complaints I've heard um, a lot of times come from a place of anxiety. People hear about lean it's a bad you know the the word doesn't help us but they start thinking you know their their minds start going to a place where they say oh this is going to be uh, my, people are going to tell me how to practice medicine. They're telling me how to do my work. These these standards are going to be inappropriate or inflexible, or you know. And, and I said, well, wait a minute. They 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 don't have to be inappropriate and inflexible because we'll we'll work together to make sure they are appropriate and <coughs> flexible, and that we're improving them over time because we're engaging people instead of it being dictated. But you know, the New England Journal of Medicine. Uh, published an opinion piece by you know, a couple of doctors from Boston where they were decrying, you know, what the headline called medical tailorism, And, you know, ironically, the things they were complaining about related to Taylorism are the same things that I complained about with, you know, the old General Motors culture of the old GM culture when I worked there 20 years ago of managers focusing on quantity before quality, not letting people stop the line, not listening to people. And if these doctors feel like that's the environment they're in, yeah, I, I would stand shoulder to shoulder and say, what you're describing is a problem. But I would say lean is the alternative where they've somehow confounded that well what's happening to us is lean and and there could be all sorts of reasons we'd speculate why they think these things are lean but um you know i think it's it's all more complicated i think you know part of your original question back to me was you know people being quote unquote resistant and you know i think in in most resistance there's some uh, reasonable reason why: lack of understanding, lack of engagement, lack of alignment. You know, it, it's. I think the role of leaders to work through that resistance instead of just getting combative and blaming the doctors or whoever's being resistant. I think there's also.
1: Uh, you're absolutely right, and, and I think to go further, there should be an understanding that that, and you've written about this, of course, that standardized work is not one size fits all. No. Um, and that there is adapt- adaptation and uh, an accommodation for individuals and for the environment mm-hmm. that are made that should be made and I, I when we were talking the other day, I was thinking about this as a I used to be a, a coach of a high school cross country team, and there are some basic standard principles that we follow you don't start doing speed work until you've built a distance base, things like this yeah, yeah. but a distance base for you might involve running, and, and this is certainly true for me, I, I was not very good with high mileage uh, because when I was a competitive runner because uh, my body didn't handle it very well for any one of a hundred different reasons. And so my high mileage weeks were probably 50 mile weeks. I had teammates that were doing 110 mile weeks because that's what worked for them. The basic principle of doing the getting the base mileage in before we would start doing the sharpening work, that held regardless. So first we did our base work and then everyone did speed work, but what the base was and what the type of speed work was that we did varied very much depending on the individual. But the standard process of preparing to peak through the course of a season, that was consistent. Hmm. Uh, because you have to make accommodation for the individual yeah. uh, biomechanics, for the individual strengths and weaknesses and abilities and capabilities.
0: Yeah. Well, and I think, there, you know, back to the fitness and sports realm, there's, I think, an interesting difference between individual sports and team sports. I used to play tennis in high school. Um, so, you know, if you look at being taught to hold the racket a certain way even if you look among pro tennis players which which i was far from a a pro tennis (laughs) player but there are so many different variations and different ways of holding the racket and you think well that would be a very basic thing that i'm sure all of the best players have a best practice for how they hold the racket but i think a lot of players would say well you know what this works for me my body mechanics and whatever you know and and what ultimately it comes down to is like okay if you're winning matches you know who who's going to argue with the way you serve the ball but in team sports and i'm a huge fan of the san antonio spurs there is there is such a system there and there's at some point a bit of a, a you know maybe subjugation to the team goals as opposed to your, your individual goals um, but yeah, I think workplaces are more of a team sport. Unless uh, I'm kind of going back and forth here. On the other hand, you know, a surgeon in the operating room. Do if, if I'm the patient, do I care that Surgeon X is doing things exactly the same way as Surgeon Y? Maybe not. Do they have the same outcomes? I mean, I think is is the fair question. Um, I, I saw an article the other day about a hospital where the hospital CEO, who was not a physician, was talking about you know, their, their new facility that they had used lean design practices for, and a lot of it sounded really encouraging. And then he used an example like, well, in our hospital now, if, if any surgeon is doing an appendectomy, they're all going to be done exactly the same way. And I, I kind of thought, well, I wonder how the surgeons feel about that. Right. And, what, and what do you mean by exactly the same way? I mean, what, what if a surgeon's left-handed? Therefore, they're they're no longer doing it exactly the same way.
1: <laughs> or what if a patient is particularly obese or has a particularly right. challenging anatomy? Uh, because every patient is different. I think I think that's where where the that gross uh, hammer from above that says you will do it the same way runs into the very natural resistance and pushback from surgeons saying, well, wait a minute, I'm a lefty. You mm-hmm. can't make me do it the same way. But. Maybe you use the same tools. Maybe you right. use the same basic approach to the appendectomy. Maybe you use the same sutures um, so that you know that if there's a, if there's a, maybe there's a, if you can standardize this, you can start to identify, well, we have more complications with these sutures than with those cert- sutures, or we have more complications with this type of uh, the, doing an appendectomy this way than that way. Um, but if everyone's doing it their own way, that you don't really know.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, I think uh, you talk about standardizing sutures or standardizing the type of knee implant. The only times I've ever heard about, you know, successful attempts at standardizing around medical devices or supplies, or whatever, it was when it was surgeon-driven, when it was a team of surgeons. Right. Or the chief working with the surgeons to figure out. I think the key questions are, you know, what needs to be standardized to what level of detail and for what benefit? And, um, you know, I think that that when you have the discussion that way and you're engaging people, you may have a business goal. The CFO may come to the surgeons and say, look, hey, you know, we, we, we could we I bet we would really benefit by standardizing some of these devices. But I think, you know, you can't just force that on the surgeons. So you might be able to in the short term, but I don't think that's the right long term strategy. You've got to engage them and let them figure it out.
1: And this, of course, comes back to where we started, which you pointed out, which is that the the standard work needs to be created by the operator, whether that's a neurosurgeon or a carpenter or a janitor. It doesn't matter. The person doing the work knows what needs to be done and how it can be done most easily. And it's disrespectful, I think, for anyone. Uh, To your point, it's totally fine for for the, the... the CFO or CEO to say, listen, we could really reduce our inventory carrying costs uh, right. and drop uh, half a million dollars to the bottom line if we could if we could lo- reduce the number of artificial needs we have from seven models to three. Can you guys figure out a way to reduce it? And now you figure it out. Oh, sure. Because you're the ones who are putting in the orthopedic surgeons. You're the guys who are doing it.
0: Yeah, and I think you know, for the the doctors and the surgeons, I think who rightfully have concern about managers or, or people telling them how to practice medicine. I, I think there's a whole layer of of healthcare process that you know uh, lends itself much more to standardization. So let's say if a surgeon says well, well i'm not going to follow the quote-unquote universal protocol i'm not going to do the timeout before surgery because you know what it works for me i've never had a wrong site surgery i think you know there, an organization might step back and say well you know what that that's non-negotiable if you, if you want to practice here you need to follow that standard because it really is proven um to be better for the patients unless it's a purely emergent situation where you know, that a delay to do the timeout would jeopardize the patient. Um, right. I think, you know, when I've done work in primary care, we're looking at standardizing processes that support the doctors. We're not getting in the middle of their uh, diagnosis and, and, and patient interaction. Um, you know, so I think, you know, that, that in all these things, there's probably gray area in judgment and judgment. And, you know, that's that's what we do as people, right?
1: I do wonder if in some way we've, the the very terminology standard work has created its own problem that the it sounds like you're forcing me to into a cookie cutter you're forcing me to paint by numbers and if we called it i know there's obviously plenty of discussion about this and there's reasons not to do it but if you call it best practices a lot of people would say oh well there are best practices for doing an appendectomy
0: yeah well, but at the same time, I, I, I hear, put, I, you know, there's yeah. negative connotations to that term, too. I Absolutely. Mean, I, think, I mean, Absolutely. you know, Toyota publications tend to use the, the, the phrase standardized work um, instead of just standard, because I, I think right or wrong, I think standard sounds very definite, where to me standardized implies there's kind of a spectrum. It's more standard than it was before because there's benefits to doing that, but we don't take it to an illogical extreme. That's yeah. why I like the term standardized work, but it's just a word.
1: Yeah. Um, certainly the the, the uh, there's no there's no perfect solution except of course to spend time with people and show them and explain yeah. it to them. Um, and then you could call it whatever you want. Uh, then it doesn't matter once people understand what the intent is and how it should be done.
0: Yeah. Um but I <laughs> The other comment I'll make, and you know, I hear your reaction, then we'll move on to his other principles um, from your book. Uh, I had this kind of a conversation around, you know, people say, you know, we can't get caught in circular logic. We need to standardize that. And, and I'll, ask, <laughs> I'll ask why. Because Lean says so. <laughs> why? Like, I mean, the goal is not standardization. The goal is improving safety and quality and, and uh, all these other things that matter. You know, standardization when it's helpful as a means to an end as opposed to, you know, something to get obsessive about.
1: Well, that, that always reminds me of the conversations you and I have had about 5S and, you mm-hmm. know, we need, we need to, st- we need 5S for the pencils on our desk. Well... Why? <laughs> why? Maybe you do, but you'd have to come up with a pretty good reason why the number of pencils that you're using actually matters mm-hmm. and where they are located. And there are environments where that is important, but generally speaking, not so much.
0: Yeah. Well, so you mentioned 5S, uh, I guess a form of visual management, the fifth principle. Let's bring it back to your book. Talk talk about how visual management applies or what the parallels are from the worlds of fitness and and work. So in the fitness world, think about visual management
1: as real-time feedback. If you go into a gym, one of the first things you see is yourself, and that's because there are mirrors everywhere. You want to have mirrors because if you're doing, if you're move, if you're doing bench pressing or squats or whatever, you want to be able to see what you're doing to make sure you don't blow out a knee that makes
0: sense. I thought it if was you... just to admire your muscles. Well, there is the
1: narcissistic. <laughs> there is the ability to admire your muscles and also to check out the, the cute guy or girl next to you. Okay. But it's also fundamentally there to make sh- to help you self-correct in the middle yeah. of an exercise. Make sure you do it right. If you think about the high-tech version of this, we've got all kinds of fitness trackers. We've got Apple watches. We've got Fitbits and Jawbones and whatnot. Um, Nike fuel bands. The idea here is that You want to find out when you're running or exercising. You want to make sure that your pulse is below your lactate threshold, say, so it's not maxed out. Or perhaps you want to find out that you are, if you're trying to walk 10,000 steps a day, you want to find out in the middle of the day that you're only at 2,500. You don't want to find out at the end of the week or the end of the month that you missed your target because then it's too late. So we do all of these things to give us real-time feedback so that we're able to correct before... The game is over before it's right. too late. Now, if you look in most organizations, particularly the office side, the work is invisible. Uh, it's electrons. It's not protons. So you don't actually have something moving down an assembly line. It's usually uh, bits and bytes being transferred between computers. And you see people sitting at their desks, and you have no idea if they're on pace or behind pace or ahead of pace. You have no idea if the work is quality or defective. So the question I always have is, and I think that it's important to consider, is how can we make office work in particular, people are much, much better at this in, in factories, but how can we make the work we're doing visible so that we yeah. can see in real time that this is quality or not quality, that we're ahead or behind. Um, in the book, of course, I've got all kinds of it being a visual management chapter, I've got all kinds of pictures, and it's kind of hard to talk about the photos. Um, <laughs> but people, the, people should go buy the book. Then they people should the buy the book, absolutely. <laughs> um, or the ebook is even better because then the pictures are in color and uh, they, they render much better than they did in the black and white book. Okay. But but the idea is, I, I, I've seen, I, 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 I've I've been in a law firm, a patent office, a specialty um, law firm that does patent applications, and all of their work is visible. So they can see at any given moment where, a, project, where a, a client matter is, what the status is, whether it's ahead or behind, uh, whether, uh, where it is at the patent office. And so at any given time, if a customer calls and says, hey, what's going on with uh, my patent XYZ, anyone can pick up the phone and say, oh, well, it looks like uh, Roger is working on this, and he's got another day to do it, and then it'll be uh, posted for review or something like that. Um, I have seen uh, a construction, an uh, architecture construction company, two of them actually, uh, that run their projects with post-it notes on walls, on whiteboards. And these are commercial projects, and we're not talking about building a doghouse, we're talking about office buildings, we're talking about hospitals, things like this. And they manage the very, very, very complicated flows of material and information, not just internal, of course, but from their suppliers, all through visual board. So that right. at any given time you can see, oh look, the carpenters are coming. Oh look, the, the guys laying the foundation are late. Oh, the steel people are on time. Or there was a problem. What was the problem? They can see it. Yeah. And when you have that kind of information, you have the opportunity to make real time corrections uh, and compensate as necessary or adjust as necessary. Right. And that's what we do in the fitness world everyone who ever has who's ever run a 5k race or a 10k race is running with a watch and they say oh look it's the, here i am at the mile mark and i'm at whatever i'm 10 seconds ahead of pace or i'm 10 seconds behind yeah why don't we have that in the workplace yeah
0: well i think you know it, it uh, would just emphasize and amplify what you said about the idea of real time feedback um, a lot of times i think people mistake the idea of visual management for monthly performance metrics and oh we posted that we posted <laughs> right, the right. chart on the wall therefore it's visual and that's visual management i'm like well i mean you know we don't you know from a fitness standpoint um you know weighing yourself every single day you may you know there's going to maybe be some fluctuation that you shouldn't overreact to but you know if you're dieting and trying to lose weight i'm sure you want to measure yourself more than once a month weigh yourself once a month you need a little bit more ongoing real-time feedback whether it's that number or to your example of thinking like you know working with the trainer and, and looking in the mirror and you're doing squats and don't let your knee go out in front of your uh, foot right like right, you know right. you can try to look for that but you know, I'm trying to think like well would there be a visual a way of putting a line on the mirror that says don't let your leg (laughs) right I guess the visual is just looking at your own reflection but you know to have some sort of guide like you know some hospitals will use visual management to to have a line and an indicator to mark that if a patient's on a ventilator the bed should not be reclined any further than this you know there's a clear real-time there's a visual um, that you then, if it's being violated, have to react to. So that's the management side of it, visual and uh, management, as opposed to just looking at the monthly data and the metrics around ventilator associated uh, pneumonia rates. Right. You get much better, more actionable feedback when you're looking for the real time visual control instead of just looking at a visual metric. Absolutely.
1: And it makes all the difference because uh, I, the metaphor that I don't know if i was clever enough to come up with it or i swiped it from someone but it's like dry if you don't have the visual feedback it's like driving by looking in the rear view driving someplace by looking in the yeah. rear view mirror yeah. you can't see where you're going because you're looking at the weekend month end, quarter end statistics which tells you nothing by right. the time you it, see it, it's too late
0: yeah or it tells you something and the the, the truth is hidden in that data. I mean, you know, Dr. Deming and his, his uh, contemporaries would, would use that analogy about driving using the rearview mirror or, you know, I think of, you know, you know, workplace situations where people have monthly metrics. There's so much variation in knowledge that gets lost. It's sort of like, um, you know, compressing video to pick a totally different analogy. If you compress the video, you know, at some point you lose a lot of the, the, the information there and the pictures Grainier than it could be, yeah. Um, I think that's one of the advantages of real-time metrics. And I, again, I would sort of try to encourage people: don't overreact to every up and down in the data. Why was productivity worse than yesterday? Right. Sometimes it just is, you know. But people don't like that as an answer. Right, and we're dealing with such
1: enormously complicated or complex systems. You can't have, and Lord knows, the red bead experiment is a perfect example of this. Right. Um, there's going to be variation because systems are complex, um, and that is if variation is inevitable. Yeah. Uh, but when you have re- real-time feedback, you can at least, when you do have special cause, you can start to say, Ah, here's something I can see now, and here's something I can I can right. react to, yeah. and even better. You, with, with real time feedback, you can prevent yourself from going over the cliff. You can prevent yourself from, if you're running a race, you can prevent yourself from going running too hard in the beginning because you're getting real time feedback. I better slow down. I've got another 12 miles to go.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, I better be careful, and keep my knee, I'm doing a squat. I better keep my knee behind my, my foot, my toes. Otherwise, I'm going to blow out my knee. So, having that feedback prevents you from getting into trouble.
0: But then I I think it comes back to uh, standardized work and the TWI, my TWI mindsets, you know, here's why you need to keep your knee in a certain position so you don't blow out your knee. There's that reason why that's a key point. You don't want to get hurt. Uh, It's not just um, the trainer being fussy for no good reason. Right, right. So maybe, you know, we talk about trainers and maybe we can transition into the sixth principle. When you talk about coaching, um, you know, I think a good trainer is a coach. Um, when I was in marching band all through high school and college, our marching band directors uh, were, were coaches. Um, you talk about in the book, The Coaching Triangle. What, what, what does that mean and, and what's the importance of coaching uh, in the context of lean?
1: Well, I try to think about great coaches, and I used to be a coach, as I said, an athletic coach. Uh, and obviously there's, there's, because the world is filled with uh, 7 billion different people, there are 7 billion different ways of coaching. But I think that there are, we tell people they should be a coach. I think there are three things that are really worth considering to become an effective coach. And the first one is to go see. Yep. This is straight out of the Lean Playbook, of right. course. Go yeah. see it, And the the theory here, of course, is that it's much easier to coach when you actually see what's happening. Um, and if anyone has a personal trainer, they can imagine what the difference is if they just get workouts from a trainer via email mm. or via Skype call versus the trainer meeting you in the gym or showing up at your house. It's an entirely different dynamic in terms of Uh, motivation, in terms of uh, adherence to the protocol or the workout, uh, in terms of excitement, in terms of learning. So go and see is really important. Mm -hmm. Uh, Participation. Uh, In my mind, the best coaches participate. So if you take a look at someone like Jim Caldwell, who used to coach the Indianapolis Colts, or Bill Belichick, and I hate mentioning Bill Belichick because he coaches the Patriots and I'm from New York (laughs) and so I'm a New York Jet fan and so it kills me to talk about Bill Belichick, but Hmm. he actually will run the plays. with. He'll he'll participate in the practices. He doesn't just show up to go see, but he Mm -hmm. actually participates. He shows players how to do stuff. And obviously, he's 55 years old or whatever. He's not actually tackling a 310-pound guy. But he's showing people how it's
0: done. Um, and before I get to the third part, Jim Harbaugh, who's now coaching at the University of Michigan, I think he's probably about 50 years old. And, and he's still out there running right yeah, right. with <laughs> right, the players. Exactly. Um, yeah. I, I don't think John Wooden, when he was
1: coaching the UCLA Bruins, the men's basketball team, to 11 titles in 13 years. I don't think he was, uh, he was dunking over his no, players yeah. when he was 80 years old yeah. or 75 years old. But the participation is important because it shows one, not only how to do it, but it shows that you're in. You're involved. And Art Byrne wrote something in his book, The Lean Turnaround. He said something like, you can't just send a memo. And John Jacentis has written the same thing, essentially. You can't send a memo. You've got to do it. You've got to go to the shop floor. You've got to lead it. You've got to do it. You've got to be part of it. And while, you know, sort of the ultimate extreme of this uh, is Paul Akers over at FastCap in Washington. Uh, There's a fantastic video on his website, Mm TwoSecondLean.com. You can go see Paul scrubbing the toilet. Now, here's the CEO of a company, I don't know exactly how big it is, but you can imagine that he has a lot of things on his plate that he's trying to do, but it's so important for him to coach and to lead and to participate so that everyone says, oh, you know what, if it's important enough for Paul to be showing us how to scrub the toilet and do it this way, I guess it really is important for our company. So that participation element is just huge, and I think that... um, if you go see and you show and you uh, and you participate, you never end up on undercover boss looking like a, like a
0: gentleman. <laughs> being out of, not not being so out of touch. Yeah. Right. Yeah. What I had no idea that you were working in uh,
1: in an unheated room in the middle of winter in yeah. Michigan. Oh, I guess that's bad. And then the, the last the last element of the triangle, I believe, is showing respect. Uh, and this is not just the 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 obvious. Don't be a jerk to people that you're, that you're, that you're leading. Uh, that's obvious, I think, at least one would hope. But the other element is what Mike Rother, I think, has really done a great job of exploring in his book, Toyota Kata. this notion of helping people, respecting people's ability to learn, to grow, to solve problems creatively on their own, with guidance, of course. Yes. So rather than just giving them the answer, do it this way, help them think through it so they become better problem solvers on their own respecting their ability to grow yeah. and that is another thing you see with all the great coaches that they respect your ability they don't just say shut up and do it
0: mm-hmm.
1: they help you try to figure out what you're doing why you're doing it and how to do it better yeah. and those three elements that triangle I think is where you start to really see great coaching and great results
0: and, and you call it a triangle because all three of those pieces need to be there in sort of a mutually supportive way?
1: Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, you certainly could just go see and, and participate and if you're a, a, a jerk about it, um, people are not going to respect you and people you're not going to get the results you want. You can be very respectful of people and support them, but if you never see their environment or participate in what they're doing, They're going to say, yeah, this really isn't all that important to the, to the CEO or to the VP of operations or whatever, Mm -hmm. because if it were important, she would be here. Mm. So I, I think that having all three creates a, a strong community, community bonds that, that lead to improved performance, Mm. to to Mm -hmm. continuous improvement, continuously improved
0: performance. Yeah. And there's been so much talk, I think, you know, in the past couple of years about uh, coaching and, um, you know, the lean in community. There's there's conferences. There's all sorts of uh, you know, different events and, and summit topics about this. What, what do, you, do you hear? What do you, what do you think are the biggest concerns or challenges people have? You know, if they, they want to be a coach and they're trying to get better at it. Are, are there any sort of you know, common ideas or thoughts that you might share with the listeners here before we wrap up? Boy, I'd
1: rather have the listener share with me. I, I would yeah. say, I would say honestly, this is my greatest area of weakness, Mark. I, it is so hard for me to shut my trap <laughs> and to ask questions instead of telling people. I'm so used to being a teacher, and I love being a teacher, that um, I'm always leaping into the breach and saying, well, what if you try this, and what if you yeah. try that? Uh, and doing everything that I say you shouldn't do. Well, you know, I'm not respecting their people's ability to learn and grow. And, and this is, this is my greatest challenge within the lead personal professional development. I, I have such difficulty with this. Yeah. Well, so if you
0: have ideas, you
1: should,
0: you should. Tell yeah, them. No, I mean, I think, well, I think your answer, I mean, raises that in a good way that one of the challenges with coaching. And I think even as, you know, consultants and teachers, we face, um, this idea that, um, you know we need to sometimes just kind of kind of shut up or we need to ask good questions and and then shut up <laughs> not assume we know the answer or the path um you know if somebody were just to come to me and say well you know I want coaching on my coaching I wouldn't lay out a 14 step uh, program of lectures and interactions I mean I think you have to you have to coach by observing and yeah you know asking questions and giving feedback and it's a it's a fairly organic process. Maybe I haven't done enough of it to make a, if you will, a standardized process out of yeah. that. But.
1: And I think that to me is, is really the brilliant aspect of Mike Rother's book. Mm-hmm. He recognizes that, uh, and this is Toyota Kata again, he recognizes that it's really, really hard for us to not help. Yeah. <laughs> it's hard for us to step away. And so, yes, his five questions are robotic. Uh, and that's precisely the point. so that you don't have a choice. You read off the card and you ask these five questions the same way in the same sequence every single day. And eventually, in two weeks or two months or two years, you change the questions to be more uh, representative and reflective of your yeah. of who you are and your personality and the situation you're in. But he takes away but by by creating, Uh, here we go, the standardized work for Mm -hmm. questioning and coaching, he takes away the variation that comes from you thinking, oh, boy, uh, Roger's really struggling here. Uh, Let me just give him the answer. Or, Boy, I'm kind of rushed. Let me just tell him what to do so that I can move on because I'm Mm -hmm. late for this meeting or I have to see a customer or whatever it is. And so Mike slows you down, forces you to do these steps, and in so doing, he has uh, codified... Um, the the respect for people yeah <laughs> by forcing people to to shut up ask questions and listen to the results yeah. there's still yeah. plenty of opportunity for back and organic back and forth and discussion and questions but this goes a, uh, all uh, it goes a long way towards getting us out of the trap trouble of trying to help too much yeah
0: well good good thoughts and I think we'll go ahead and, and wrap up here. We've gotten uh, two really good episodes out of, um, out of your book, Dan. So thank you for that. I hope the listeners enjoyed it. Um, building, a fit, build, building the Fit Organization. Do I have that right? I'm blanking out. You do. Not, building the Fit Organization. Building the Fit Organization. Um, how can people find you online if, if, if they want to, to talk with you, get some coaching, learn more about your books and your work? Remind everyone websites and, and everything you uh, can. The website is uh, Markovitz Consulting
1: and it's spelled with a V, not a W. Um, you can email me, Dan at Markovitz Consulting. I tweet under the handle Dan Markovitz. Um, and obviously, if you Google uh, building a fit organization or type that in, that, uh, that website is a redirect URL to, to my home. So you can find me any one of those ways.
0: Okay. Well, great. Well, Dan, it's uh, a pleasure talking to you. Congratulations again on uh, the recognition of uh, the Shingo Research Award uh, for the book and uh, encourage everyone to go out and check it out. Thanks for being a guest today. Mark, it's been a great pleasure. Thanks for the opportunity. Sure thing. Thanks.
1: Thanks for listening. This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. For lean news and commentary updated daily, visit www.leanblog.org.